Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. So I, once upon a time, some number of months ago, received in the mail a stuffed goat. That's weird. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was a mystery goat. Hashtag mystery goat. Uh, turns out was a gift from our good friend Molly. Um, so I named my goat Thomas Kid because, yeah, obviously. Good job. <laughs> Although, shout out to Patrick for suggesting the name. Um, and then I, I took pictures of Thomas Kid reading <laughs> Thomas Kid. <laughs> it's on my Instagram if you want to check it out. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together, we are Whamlet. Although it's not entirely accurate to say the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show this week because it's like the Hurly Burly Kid Show. Except that sounds <laughs> like a children's TV show or something like, like an after school special. But Kid, K-Y-D, because we're talking about Thomas motherfucking kid today. Hey kids, do you want to listen and learn about Thomas kid? Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much for listening through all of that. We <laughs> hope you enjoy this show and come back for more. This is our last episode of the season. You know, the end of the semester is upon us. I have to read for my PhD exams. Aubrey's got to get all settled in her new house. So we are ready to take the summer off. Yeah. And if you couldn't tell, we've gotten progressively more punchy <laughs> as the episodes wear on. So we for uh, sure need a break to get our brains back in. Yeah. To, like pour my brains back into my head. Yeah. Um, but every week on this show, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Jefferson Shakespeare at what we like to call the 101 level. Yeah, so that's introductory stuff, which is everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you will get nowhere else like our opinions. Of course, the Spanish tragedy isn't by Shakespeare. It's by Thomas Kidd. Probably. Or is it? Dun 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 dun. Dun, dun, dun. So this time you're getting Spanish Tragedy 101 by Thomas Kidd. Maybe. I definitely, mean, definitely maybe Thomas Kidd. Mostly probably Thomas Kidd, except for most the likely Shakespeare wrote or Ben Johnson or maybe. other people. <laughs> Hashtag not really. <laughs> Hashtag we don't know. I mean, oh man, the text is a lie and nothing is real. True that. True that. Alrighty. It is rhetorical device of the week time. Woohoo! Because we do keep some routines, even if we don't always keep to the Shakespeare. 
because we're word nerds. <laughs> Each week, we draw a random device from our handy-dandy ASC rhetorical device flashcards. Yes, and for actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's or Thomas Kidd's language so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Draw a card, honey bunch. All right, girl, tell me when to stop. Here we go. Stop. Ooh, okay. This week, the rhetorical device is aposiopesis. Aposiopesis? Aposiopesis. I love aposiopesis. I don't remember aposiopesis. It's a pause. It's breaking off suddenly due to emotion or something else. Oh, I love aposiopesis. Yeah, you love aposiopesis. Every actor loves aposiopesis. I mean, it's like it's the it's the Joey from Friends. It's the smell the fart moment where you yes. like look off into the distance emotionally. That's exactly. What yes. That is. Okay. Aposiopesis. A P O S I O P E S I S. Aposiopesis. Breaking off suddenly in the middle of a speech as when overcome by emotion. A turning away of conversation. Do you have any guesses as to what might be the example? Uh, not a single used one. here? No. Okay. I got nothing. Well, there are two. It's a double whammy. <clears throat> I love a double First. whammy. <laughs> First. Sorry. Is, you're not sorry, though. Okay. First is Antony from Julius Caesar. He says, bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar, and I must pause till it come back to me. And then he presumably like bites his knuckle or <laughs> sniffles or wipes a tear or whatever he does. Second example is Beatrice from Much Ado About Nothing. Huh. What? Bear her in hand until they come to take hands and then with public accusation, uncovered slander, unmitigated rancor. <gasps> oh, God, that I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. I fucking love that quote. God, she's great. She's so fierce. But yeah, so she's got that lovely pause in between parts of her rant. Yeah, I and think of course, that's the yeah. better example. I don't like the Anthony yeah. one. Yeah, the Anthony one is is pretty literal, really. Yeah. He says, I must pause, and then he pauses. Right. So you're kind of being warned about it. It's not breaking off suddenly, right. necessarily. Um, but yeah, Aposiopesis is the soap opera actor's favorite acting trick i love it <laughs> it's breaking off emotionally well usually we'd be hearing a dingly dingly ding but because this is yeah. our first contemporary we're not yeah. we're not gonna do a burbage break this week didn't seem appropriate although since <laughs> the role that richard burbage played in this play is uh one of the five roles that he was remembered for it's actually super appropriate and we should do a beverage break but we're not going to do a beverage break instead we have a new feature for you and it's mm -hmm. called meet the contemporary yeah i wish we had like old hollywood marquee music here like meet the contemporary Ooh. this week we're talking about Thomas Kidd. Thomas Kidd, come on down. Or like, yeah. Thomas Kidd. This is your life. Yeah. 
So Thomas Kidd is the playwright of the Spanish tragedy. He was born in November of 1558 and he died in August of 1594. He was 35 years old, which is young, but not as young as Christopher Marlowe when he died. So that's something. Yeah, with Christopher Marlowe anyway. He was buried in St. Mary Colchurch which was destroyed in the Great Fire in 1666, and it was not rebuilt, so we don't have his grave. His grave is lost to time and posterity, which is super That's, sad. That is sad. Yeah. That's really sad. Um, yeah. Thomas Kidd is best known for the Spanish tragedy, but also a, a lesser-known play called Solomon and Persida. Uh, there's also a lot of debate about whether or not he may or may not be the anonymous quote-unquote behind works like Arden of Faversham or Edward III or the thing that we call the Ur-Hamlet. Hashtag not really. We don't know. We don't know. We just know that Thomas Kidd wrote the Spanish tragedy, most likely. Yes. Well, I, that's I, what we know him for. I don't think there's any debate about his, his hand in the Spanish tragedy. I think that's a mostly Kidd. Okay. Uh, so it's just whether it was all him yeah, it definitely it was definitely not all him. Definitely uh -huh, okay. not. There's that is cold hard evidence that I will talk about okay. uh, after we do the summary. Great. Um, and Richard Burbage was famous for playing Hieronimo, which is the yes. biggest role in the Spanish tragedy. So. Yeah, but on reading it again this week, I was struck by how uninterested I was in Hieronimo. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's a sad dad out for revenge. Uh. Yeah, I I think that might have been colored by my memory of the play. And I was just like, get to the mask, get to the mask. But for me, this play is way more about Horatio and Bellimperia. Anyway, mm -hmm. uh, Thomas Kidd was big time rivals with Christopher Marlowe. We're going to tell you a little bit more about that a little bit later. Yes, because man, it so was good. intense. Um, he's also the OG influencer of other people's works. Like he had, um, scholars argue that he had a hand in or inspired or his work inspired a bunch of other works at the time, including Shakespeare's and Marlowe's and Marston and like other other playwrights at the time. So yeah. like he's like the Forrest Gump almost of... You know, he just happens to be in the right place at the right time or, like, influence somehow all these other works. Well, Spanish know. tragedy was super, super fucking popular. And it references yeah. to it show up everywhere. Even in the documentary Shakespeare in Love. Yes. <laughs> you remember when Ben Affleck comes out as Ned, uh, Ned, Ned Allen. Allen? And he goes, I am Hieronimo. Yep. I am Faustus. I yep. am blah blah. Oh yes, Master Will. I am Henry the Sixth. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he—that's the first role he says is I am Hieronimo, and that never clicked with me until I read this play, and I was like, yeah. Oh my God, that's Hieronimo. Yeah. Um, it gets parodied in uh, Beaumont and Fletcher's Night of the Burning Pestle as well, and probably most famously, uh, the Revenger's Tragedy by Middleton has a, mm -hmm. a pretty great send up of the Spanish tragedy. It was super fucking famous, y'all. Super famous. Anyway, yeah. so in the 1580s uh, is, is about when Kidd became an important playwright. Uh, but we don't know really anything else about what he was doing, other than writing some plays, some of which we have and some of which we don't. Uh, Francis Mears placed him among, quote, our best for tragedy. 
and Thomas Haywood, another contemporary elsewhere, called him famous kid, quote unquote. Ben Jonson has a dedicatory poem in Shakespeare's First Folio in which he mentions Kidd in the same passage as Christopher Marlowe and John Billy, who are other playwrights. Fabulous, yeah. famous playwrights. And -na 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 -na, cue the trumpets. That was your contemporary this week. That is basically everything we know about Thomas Kidd that is relevant that maybe you might want to know. Yes. I mean, there's some gossip about him coming later, but right. you just hang on to your pretty little hat. But I mean, yeah, it's like, it's like gossip though. It's so good. So like, these are, these are some of the only facts or speculations we have about this poor guy. Yeah. Yeah. So like we do all of our summaries, we like to start them out with a five word unhelpful title. Mine this week is not the Horatio, you know. Nice. Mine is actually only four words because mm. this play is only four acts. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm being clever. Um, and that is the OG revenge tragedy. Yep, that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, accurate. And actually helpful. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, yeah. a little, I suppose. Well, you know what? You're allowed to be helpful when it's a really, really unknown play. <laughs> Like, really unknown. I mean, it still doesn't really tell you anything about the play. Yeah. So. yeah. All right. So some of the people you're going to need to know, this is our Dramatis Personae section, mm -hmm. only the really important people you're going to need to know, because they're going to come up in our summary soon, is first and foremost, the ghost of Don Andrea, a Spanish courtier. He's totally dead now. He's in the play as a ghost the whole time. Yeah. His speech prefix is ghost in my text. Yeah. So... Mine is fully Ghost of Andrea, but yes. That's amazing. Are you going to say Andrea the whole time? I, no, I don't have to. I mean, I'm just, to I'm just, you? no, I'm just Andrea. because I was going to call him Andrea. <laughs> oh, I'm, then I, I yeah, I, I will say Andrea. I mean, you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Um. So also with Andrea slash Andrea slash the ghost. <laughs> Andrea. That guy. So full Spanish. Andrea, that's dumb. <laughs> um, okay, so also hanging out with the ghost, we have Revenge, um, who is an allegorical figure. He is the embodiment of the quality of revenge, um, and he serves as a chorus, kind of, uh, and is chilling with Andrea. Yeah, they're just hanging out, being dead together, watching the show. Super bit. It's it's weird. Uh, next, the biggest part in the play is Hieronimo, a knight. We also have his son, the short-lived Horatio. Spoilers. And Hieronimo's wife, Isabella. Uh, we also have the king of Spain. He's the king of Spain. Wait, what's he the king of? Spain. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a tragedy that happens in his country. Right. It's a Spanish tragedy. Great. And he's the king of Spain. Got it. So he's the king of the, the tragedy. He's the tragic king of Spain. Okay. The king of Spain. <laughs> it's the end of the semester. The king of Spain has a brother. He's the Duke of Castile. The Duke of Castile has a son. His name is Lorenzo. 
the Duke of Castile's son, Lorenzo, has a sister, Bellimperia, who is mm-hmm. also coincidentally the Duke's daughter. Weird how that works. Um, mm-hmm. And when Andrea was alive, Bellimperia and Andrea were totes hitting it. They were lovers. But he's dead now. The next character you need to know is Balthazar, the son of the Viceroy of Portugal, who's also a character. And he has this very weird, like, Lord of the Rings, um, what's the name of the guy in Gondor, the regent of Gondor? Who the He's... fuck knows? Okay, but I'm saying, like, that's what I thought of when I thought of this viceroy, because he's like, my son is dead. Don't try to tell me he's alive. I'm going to kill you. And then he's like, wait, my son's alive? It's very, um, I'm not, it's Faramir and Boromir's dad. My nerds will know. <laughs> Someone I out there will know. But I can't it's remember not, the name of the dude. It's not just Hamlet. Anyway, he has one of those moments in the play. Also, Balthazar is trying to win the hand of Bellimperia, and I feel like that's important. So it I'm is. Just that out there. Yeah. It'll come back in the in the Great. thing. Just, summary. Why is this play so goddamn popular? It's not at all. <laughs> Literally, not even a little bit. But it fucking should be, and it fucking used to be. Okay, here's mm-hmm. why. Okay, well, I mean, we've I guess we've talked about its popularity in its time it was so fucking popular but then the you know restoration and victorians happened and they were like beaumont and fletcher and shakespeare they're the only ones worth talking about fucking victorians they ruin everything they ruin everything says the girl who spends a lot of her time with victorian shakespeare it's fine i mean the reason this play should be so important and by important, I mean popular, is because it's like the first revenge tragedy. And as we all know, revenge tragedy is the best kind of tragedy. So this is the first one. I mean, debatable. I'm a big fan of sex tragedies myself. I mean, you are allowed to have that opinion. It is wrong, but you're allowed to have it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. That's so magnanimous of you. Thank you. I mean, I love a sex tragedy. But a revenge tragedy is so much better because revenge. Um, And as I hope will become clear to you as we summarize the final scene of this play, they're fucking, oh, revenge tragedies are so good. So that's why it should be popular now is because it's great. And the act four is fucking wild. Let's create a movement. Hey, if there's anybody out there who's listening who is about to do a production of the Spanish tragedy, please get in touch with us. Or maybe you listened to this episode and you were like, oh my God, I want to do a production of the Spanish tragedy. Please let us know because we want to start a movement. Let's get the Spanish tragedy produced more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that thing. So it is summary time. What's the title of our summary this week, Jess? Uh, It's, all right, so we're going to summarize the Spanish tragedy for you in a segment that this week we like to call the Spanish summary subtitle. It's the end of the semester. Also, this does not mean that we're going to do it in Spanish. Oh, my God. No, I'm uh... learning Spanish for my exams, but I nope. I don't I can't. Uh, I'm looking at this first little paragraph and I, I could. Oh my gosh, I can't Where translate is Shakespeare any of that. Argentina when you need them. Right? Shakespeare Let's Argentina. Out. Let's do this thing. Let's do the Spanish tragedy in Spanish. Hashtag project. Okay. Act one. 
Andrea's ghost is salty about being killed in this big time battle by Balthazar, who's again Portuguese, not Spanish, and also about being separated from his BFF Horatio and his girlfriend Bell Imperia. And revenge is all just chill, bro. He's gonna get his. Just watch. And Lorenzo and Horatio argue over who captured Balthazar in battle. The king of Spain, uh, because they won the battle, decides to let Balthazar be a guest at court rather than lock him up while they wait for Portugal to send his ransom. And then Horatio goes to comfort Bell Imperia over Andrea's death, and they fall in love like immediately so meanwhile balthazar the bozo is falling in love with bell imperia also and he is totes becoming bros with lorenzo who is her brother let's remember okay so the spanish king decides that balthazar should marry bell imperia to solidify peace with portugal right it's all about like solidifying the dynasty um so lorenzo pays bell imperia's servant to spy on her and then finds out that she's trying to hit it with Horatio. And he's like, Mm-mm, this ain't gonna fly, sis. So then Lorenzo and Balthazar find Horatio and Bell Imperia in a garden. And they straight up fucking murder Horatio. And then hang his body from an arbor and kidnap Bell Imperia. You got this? Okay. Then Horatio's parents, Hirono and Isabella, find the body of their son. And they both go a little insane for a minute. In Act 3, which is actually the longest act ever it's so fucking long long it's so long just brace yourself for how long it is um it's a lot of recounting and a lot of plotting but basically it boils down to bell imperia is locked in a tower but she uses her own blood as ink to write a secret letter to Hieronimo to tell him who killed horatio because now Hieronimo has made a vow that he's like on a revenge kick and he's gonna kill whoever killed his son and so bell imperia helps him out Again, in a letter written in her own damn blood, from prison in a tower, Lorenzo, her brother, arranges the murders of a bunch of servants to cover his tracks, and Mama Isabella goes crazy. Okay, so then buckle up. So Lorenzo convinces the king that Horatio is still alive and prevents Geronimo from getting an audience at court. Because Geronimo's like, my son is dead. I gotta get my revenge. And Lorenzo's like, no, 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 no. Horatio's totally alive. He's over there. He's busy right now. You can't talk to him. Don't worry about it, Uncle King. He's busy. (laughs) Mama Isabella commits suicide and... Hieronimo goes mad for a minute again, but then he gets his shit back together and he gets together with Bell Imperia and they decide to stage a revenge mask. Okay, so they get Lorenzo and Balthazar to take parts in the mask and the mask is mostly staged in foreign languages for drama. Okay, but it is so shady. It's so shady. Okay, so they're like rehearsing this mask in foreign languages because drama right so also bell imperia and Hieronimo use real daggers instead of prop daggers so <sighs> bell imperia kills balthazar and then herself oh my gosh Hieronimo kills lorenzo and then Hieronimo tells the court that everybody's dead for real and then he says why everybody's dead for real and then he bites out his own tongue so that he doesn't have to give any more information and they can't torture it out of him okay so they're like that's fine you're gonna write a confession instead here's a pen right but remember that a pen is like a quill okay so he's like oh but like without his tongue he's like "Mm, i need i need a knife to sharpen my quill so i can write better he's like you know he's like my manship so they hand him a knife so he can sharpen his quill which he uses to stab the Duke 
and then kill himself. <laughs> the Duke of Castile. The Duke of Castile. Lorenzo oh and Bellimperia's dad. Okay. So then Andrea's finally satisfied and revenge is all like, I'ma fuck him up real good five ever. The end. That's quite an ending. I love this shit. How'd we do on time? Four and a half minutes. Right on. Yeah, we're Perfect. fucking killing it. Um, the end of the Revengers tragedy is quite similar to this for reasons that are clear when you realize that the Revengers tragedy is a parody of revenge tragedies. Oh. So that's what happens in the play. It's real great. You should read it and also perform it. Dang. Yeah. Yes. That, yeah. Act four is fucking bonkers. Yes. But not as bonkers. long as act three, which is a hundred no. goddamn pages in the Arden edition. It's so long. It's so long. One hundred <laughs> pages. Yeah. I had to read act three, scene 12 twice. Because there are two different versions. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Why don't we? Yes, do let's. Okay. So, uh, Spanish tragedy has a fairly wild textual history. Before the Restoration, there were 11 print editions, which ties 1 Henry IV for popularity and is second only to Musidorus, which is an anonymous play that has a bear and is about war. It's not great. I read it earlier this year. More importantly, sometime between 1592 and the, the first quarto and the 1602 fourth quarto, the play underwent some massive revisions which were very probably written by that nice William Howard Shakespeare. <laughs> Howard. You're welcome. That's great. Yeah. So our good friend, Roz Knutson, who we love, uh, believes that there is a very strong link between the revision slash additions to this play and Hamlet. Either in that, you know, depending on the timing, um, the additions inspired Hamlet or the additions were an attempt to capitalize on Hamlet's success. Other candidates for authorship of those editions, well, the the only other real candidate for that authorship is Ben Johnson, who was definitely paid for some revision work to this play by Philip Henslow, who owned the play. However, there there seems to be some disagreement on what exactly that payment was actually for. It may have been for revisions to this play, or it may have been for revisions to another play about Hieronimo. Um, Holger Syme, who is at the University of Toronto, points out that there were a lot of plays going around in the 1590s in London that featured a Hieronimo character because he was super popular. So Holger Syme and Doug Brewster, who's at uh, University of Texas at Austin, I think, say that the additions to this play are written were written by Shakespeare and they based that claim on similarities between the Spanish tragedy editions and Shakespeare's contributions to uh Sir Thomas More. There's a lot of like orthographic stuff that's going on that's really really similar. Um and I think it's a convincing argument. We have uh some some links to a couple articles that you can read that will briefly summarize what's going on and we'll throw those up on the website if any of our listeners want to read more about it. So Holger Syme also posits that Shakespeare's editions to this play took place sometime between 1596 and 1598 with Richard Burbage in the mind for the part of Hieronimo. So that dates it a little more and would then lend a little more credence to this play inspiring Hamlet and being what we think of as the Ur Hamlet. And when I say Ur, 
that is you are and that just means original so this is this is the source text for hamlet probably people there i mean you can just agree about anything in the world people disagree about this but i am disinclined to argue with roz knutson who thinks that this is the ur hamlet so i'm gonna go with this is the ur hamlet in the arden edition of this play which is the one that i read uh this week the additions are set in a different typeface and they come with their own set of line numbers, which makes for a really jarring reading experience, but also makes it real easy to tell when I'm getting the additions from the 1604 or 1602 quarto. I wish that I could show our listeners like an example of what that looks like. Um, it's wild. It's it's really wild. And when I said I had to read Act 3, Scene 12 twice, it's because there are there are basically two different versions of it. And they they break it up into Act 3, Scene 12 and Act 3, Scene 12A. So that's what I have to say about this text. It's It's got a, just a bananas textual history and I love it so much. Great. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah. So this one... Uh, you know, I think I read this play for Dr. Roz's class. I think my only exposure to this play might have been in Dr. Roz's class. So it's been a while since I've read it, which is a, you know, a good thing and a bad thing, right? It, um, bad, quote unquote, because it just took time for me to sit down and revisit it and read it. But at the same time, it allowed me to return to this play fresh in a way that I don't think we get to when it's a Shakespeare play. Yeah. So, so I really got to experience reading this play as someone who might be looking at this going, trying to like produce it or teach it. So these are just some of my initial thoughts. If you are in that boat listeners um, or both boats, I don't know. First of all, OMG, so much graphic violence and murder for your combat and your special effects junkies to have fun with. Yeah. And either producing or maybe workshopping it in class. I don't even know. I mean, aside from, so uh, Horatio gets murdered and hanged from an arbor. Bellimperia and Lorenzo and the Duke and her uh, Hieronimo and Balthazar all get stabbed at the end. Mm-hmm. And then there's... Uh, Pedragano in the middle who is hanged question mark or shot yes he is yeah he's um he's hanged he and then one the other of, two guys he's are one shot. of the guys yeah he's one of the guys that Lorenzo kind of arranges to be killed right yeah he's he the, the servant him. who brings the information that Horatio and Bellimperi are right. hidden at. he uses him and then he lets him get arrested and then when Pedragano asks him for help he like sends through another guy. He's like, oh yes, the the guy's his pardon is in this box, but there's fucking nothing in the box. Yeah. So Pedringano acts like an asshole all the way to the gallows, thinking he's going to be pardoned, and then there's no pardon. It's fucking dirty, but awesome. <laughs> yes. Um. So yeah. So you have like, I would definitely approach this if in the classroom by staging some choice moments, or you know, working out as a class how you might stage those moments but there's a ton here for combat and special effects people to really run wild with um, if you're in the classroom or trying to produce this play so it's tons of fun there's a super weird supernatural induction (laughs) conceit with Don Andrea and his buddy (laughs) revenge so like consider what are the performance possibilities there do you want them 
planted in the audience the entire time? Do you want to make a thing of it? Maybe not. You know, maybe you've got yeah. a small cast. Like, I mean, the, you know, what could you do? The stage directions indicate that they, you know, they start every act and then watch. Right. Yeah. So, you know, just like just like if you were going to continue the Thomas Sly induction in The Taming of the Shrew. Mm-hmm. There's that, you know, it's that kind of device. So, like, you know, if you're blessed enough to have enough actors, maybe make a thing of it. I don't even know. So there's that. Then the one thing, the big thing to keep in mind, and this is both, a, I think, a plus and a minus, is that Thomas Kidd is not Shakespeare. Right. The the language and the metrical differences uh, in their writing are kind of jarring. What I noticed um, reading it all the way through is that looks like kid is more inclined to keep the lines as regular as possible. And by that, I mean, totally iambic pentameter all the way through. I, I found very few moments that were not regular. Whereas, you know, in Shakespeare, we, in some circles, make much of, oh, the line is irregular. What does that mean about the the heartbeat of the character? And I'm not sure you're going to find that with Kid. Uh, and that's fine, but it's a thing to know. So, like, don't go into this thinking that, that everybody used the same devices the same way as Shakespeare, because they most definitely did not. There's some wonderful rhetoric in here, though. Wonderful, wonderful um he kid was really into repetition for effect especially with Hieronimo so look out for that it's lots of fun so but this could be a good thing you know this could be a a really great asset for you if you're trying to teach this or if you're working with folks who are a little less enthusiastic about Shakespeare um it might be cool to introduce them to a contemporary who doesn't write quite the same way and who writes in a very you know, with with spectacle in mind, with bloody spectacle in mind, which because let's be honest, that's probably what made this play so popular is the spectacle. So it might be a way in for reluctant or skeptical students uh, to introduce them to early modern theater, you know, get, wet their feet with a different author and then be like, you know what this is a lot like is that Hamlet, though, and like get them in that way. It's very sneaky. But that said, boy, howdy, are there some great roles to play? There, you know, Belle Imperia is a boss. She's got that great um, speech. She's fantastic. Yeah. You've got wonderful villains, really great tropes from a bunch. It feels like a bunch of different genres. I mean, revenge is straight out of the morality plays, right? You so you've got that, and like you've got this ghost, and like this plays a real smorgasbord of genres and illusions. Kid makes like. I, I couldn't help but notice the nod to England, like somewhere in the middle of Act <laughs> Two, where it's like praising England by not the Spanish are like praising England. I was like, mm, okay, that's yeah, weird. yeah. Um, but then there's a ton of references to Seneca and Greek mythology, and my God, a ton of great characters in here have wonderful speeches, and you've got a lot of villains. So if you have a class or a cast that loves to be villains, then this is the play for you. Really, really great roles. So yep. fun things to think about if you're if you're just wetting your feet with the Spanish tragedy. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, you want to play a game? Oh, my God. Yes, I want to play this game oh so hard. OK, we have a new game this week, which we've just made up. Uh-huh. It's called <laughs> which... Contemporary Frenemies, a.k.a. Kid Hates Marlowe So Much. So uh much you guys so in this game we are just basically going to go back and forth 
some hot goss between Thomas Kidd and Christopher Marlowe because they hated each other so goddamn much. But they were like roommates, though. Yeah. They, yeah. I'm unclear on who hates who and when at what point because they totes live together. But basically, we're just going to gossip about Kidd and yeah. Chris Marlowe. Yeah. Like we're mean girls. Who I also want them to be. This is what I want to have happened in their relationship, right? Is because they were totally roomies. And then I want them to be have been like super gay for each other. But then Kid was all like, we're done here. By Felicia. Ooh, like it was an ugly breakup? Yeah, and then Kit Marlowe got all butthurt. And then stabbed in the eye. Yeah, and then stabbed in the eye. <laughs> but not before he had Chris Marlowe, or he had Thomas Kidd arrested. Okay, take it yeah. away, Aubrey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> take it away. Okay, okay. So around 1591, Christopher Marlowe had also joined his patron's service, and for a while, Marlowe and Kidd shared lodgings, and perhaps even ideas. Okay. So then, on the 11th of May in 1593, the Privy Council ordered the arrest of the authors of, quote, divers, lewd, and mutinous libels, which had been posted <gasps> around London. He did not. Uh-huh. The next day, Kidd was among those arrested. He would later believe that he had been the victim of an informer. His lodgings were searched, and instead of evidence of the, quote, libels, there was found an Arianist tract. What in the fuck is an Arianist tract? Okay. Described by an investigator as a vile, heretical conceits denying the eternal deity of Jesus Christ found amongst the papers of Thomas Kidd, prisoner, which he affirmeth he had from C. Marley. I think he meant Marlowe, but yeah. they wrote C. Marley. Well, it's one of those variant spellings of Christopher Marlowe's name. Mm-hmm. Um, real quick sidebar, Arianism is an influential heresy denying the divinity of Christ. Oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, like, oh my God. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. So then they think that kid was brutally tortured to obtain this information. Right. So like, we have to remember that like he was probably being racked or whatever and said all of these things. Okay. Ouch. So kid said uh all those writings that you found they weren't mine they were christopher marlowe's uh he is a noted atheist and totally a spy and also used to be my roommate jk they were mine kid quote accused his former roommate of being a blasphemous traitor an atheist who believed that jesus christ was a homosexual and unfortunately kid was with marlowe at the wrong place at the wrong time Kid was not an atheist, but Marlowe was. Oh my god. Oh my god. Like, and they were still contemporary playwrights together, and they still had to, like, act like they liked each other, maybe, kind of. Mm -hmm. But they totally didn't. Well, and then they both died the next year. And then they died. Both of them died the same year? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh my god. Yeah, so Kid died first in, in August, and then... Uh, Chris Marlowe was stabbed through the eye, famously, in the tavern at Deptford. Conspiracy. Uh, in December, I'm pretty sure. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. That, too, was from the famous documentary Shakespeare in Love. JK. Not in December. In May. <laughs> okay. So but still, like, yeah. not long after. So Chris Marlowe was stabbed in the eye, like, three weeks after Thomas Kidd was arrested. Uh-huh. Oh <clears throat> my god, Becky. 
look at Chris Marlowe's butt. It is so big. Thomas Kidd wants to hit it because they were gay for each other. <laughs> that's usually how frenemies happen. Yeah. That's how that, that's how that works. There's unspoken sexual tension. Unspoken sexual tension is the name of my next band. Nice. All right, so let's move on to some Shakes Bubble gossip, just to bring it back. Right. I realized that I went to see, I had told everybody, I was like, I'm going to go see some plays at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival almost two months ago. And then I didn't report back like I said I would. Ugh, Aubrey. I know, I know. Fire. Horribly irresponsible. Very irresponsible of me. So I got to go up and see, uh, my, my friend and I went to see Othello. And a delightful telenovela style play called Destiny of Desire, which was hilarious and an absolute treat. We also saw an adaptation of Sense and Sensibility, which if I could go back in time and not see it, I would do that. <laughs> I mean, it's just bad directing choices. You're always choices. wasting your time with Austin. No, that is not true. It's absolutely true. No, it is not. We're going to have to agree to disagree and still be friends on this one because that's not true. Mm -hmm. Although I have yet to see a theatrical adaptation of Austin that has really done anything for me. Have you seen? I will will concede that. Have you seen the ASC one yet? Not yet. Okay. No, I have not. Um, But yeah, that particular production at OSF just left me cold. Then I don't want to talk about it. But. The fourth play that we got to see. And by this time, it was the fourth play in like three days because we went on a long weekend. And we had been kind of, eh, you know, Othello was all right. The the guy playing Othello was really good. It was a great cast. I have no bad things to say about that play, but I struggle to connect to that play anyway. So we, you know, my friend Lexi and I were both like, oh, okay, whatever. So we went in to see Henry V with kind of low expectations, I think. Just like, mm, okay, this is what it is. It's not either of our like favorite play, whatever. We were blown the fuck away with how good that production was. So if you have a chance to go to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival and see Henry V, go see it. It's a smallish cast, I think maybe 12 people. The production was modern dress, uh, mostly bare stage, but they used these these blocks um, really well. They opened and closed. They had things inside them. It was more like the violence in the wars was more figurative. They used like red cloth and uh, gray cloth to look like, you know, piles of bodies, but without needing all those bodies. It was very clean. The concept was clear all the way through and consistent. Uh, Daniel Jose Molina, who played Henry, had been playing Prince Hal all the way through so he played Hal in one and two Henry four last year so he's like completing that arc this year and I'm just kicking myself that I didn't get to see him play Hal in the first two plays because by the time you know we reached this play and I I would I just want to know like if he had done this all the way through or if this was like a change uh, I, I don't know but his his performance was deadly quiet a lot of times, like, it, I think the big trap with Henry V is that he can be this, like, once more into the breach and, like, very shouty. He was not shouty. He, like, the more intense and angry this Henry got, the quieter and calmer he got, which was, which is dangerous, right? And he got these, like, crazy eyes and he made it very clear that, 
you know, Henry's whole reason for going to war at all was based on right. And he really like made clear decisions about, you know, this is for God and this is for us. And like, he was so serious, um, but in a, an absolutely wonderful way. And what was particularly moving in the ensemble was that that whole scene where they're lamenting the death of Falstaff. Um, if for those of you who don't know, the, the gentleman who played Falstaff with the Oregon Shakespeare Festival last year for one and two Henry four, G. Valmont Thomas was their Falstaff. And G. Val um, was a sweet, wonderful man who succumbed to cancer in the off season in the wintertime. So when those actors were on stage talking about Falstaff being dead, they were crying and they were it was very clear that they were not just crying for the character, but they were crying for, for G Val. And that was so touching and it made it, it, you know, and that was pure coincidence. Right. But it was, it was moving and beautiful in a way that I'd never really heard and seen that scene before. So that was gorgeous. And, you know, there were some other really emotional moments, you know, at the end of the, Agincourt battle, the big one in Henry, where Henry learns from whatever, whoever, um, the numbers of the dead on either side. He, and man, props to him, props to Molina for like summoning up that kind of energy every single day um, for that play. But he like dropped on his knees and wept. Like this actor, <laughs> he, he used the line of, you know, what do you call this field? And like, Lexi and I happened to be sitting in the area of the theater where he pointed. So he was like dead on facing us <laughs> when like tears and snot just started coming out of his face and he dropped to his knees and started weeping. And then it became this really cute thing where like Flewellen, you know, says the line about being Welsh or something as a way to like cheer him up and bring him out of that. But it was so moving. So there are some really wonderful individual and ensemble performances in that show that just blew my mind. It was so refreshing to see such a clean production and a really good cut. So that was, that was exciting. And I can't believe I sat on that for that long and didn't like gush the minute you and I came back to recording after that, but great production. If you have a chance to go, go and see everything they do. But in particular, Henry five, this year was really good. Word. So, yeah. So some belated gossip, but gossip. Yeah. Well, I'll, I mean, here's some more belated gossip. I cannot fucking believe that we forgot to mention last week uh, the live stream of Cheek by Jowl's Pericles. Because I'm an idiot. Uh, no, because it's the last two weeks of the semester. That's what it was. My brain is fried. Um, but Cheek by Jowl, uh, which is a fairly important theater company in the uh, mm -hmm. UK, just uh, live streamed a rather wonderful production of Pericles in French. Ooh. Yeah, which um, is cool. It is available on demand until the 19th of May. We will put the link to that live stream. No longer live, but yeah, we will put the link to that in our show notes on our website. So if you want to watch it, Pericles in en français, yeah. then you can watch it through us. Um, it is in French with English subtitles, so you'll be, you know, you can follow the story. Cool. It looks as though it is set in present day, which is exciting. And it's short. It's an hour 45. So nice. that's a nice tight Pericles. 
frankly, and it's in French, which is a beautiful language. So go check it out, have a look, see it, because they do um, some pretty interesting work. Uh, it's directed by Declan Donnellan, this production, um, and it is, I think it was performed at the Barbican uh, in London, I think. The only other Cheek by Jell production I've ever seen is their Winner's Tale that was uh, live streamed last year, which I did not like. But that was more of, I, I think it was poorly filmed. So I, I, I couldn't see the entire stage right. at any time and, and felt like I was missing some, some things. But also was an important production and a lot of people loved it. So check it out. Check out The French Pericles. Should be great. I will watch it myself as soon as I make it to the end of the semester. Which is <laughs> so soon. By the time this airs, I'll be almost done. Just grading. Just Yay. grading. Yes. Okay. Um, a little more locally in the Shenandoah Valley area, if you're around here, the American Shakespeare Center is opening Bill Kane's Equivocation. Um, which is kind of cool, a cool selection for their spring uh, season because it talks directly to Macbeth. Um, I don't, Jesse, have you seen Equivocation? Yeah, I haven't seen this one, obviously. It's not right, open, right. But yeah, yeah, I saw about it, to open it at um, Quill oh, that's a couple right. years ago and hated it. That's right. And I was so sad about that because I had seen it when it premiered right. at, in Oregon. Yeah. And it was so good. Um, basically it is a small scale show. It is designed to be a small scale show. Um, and it's about uh, Shakespeare is a character and it's about Shakespeare's process of writing Macbeth and sort of couching criticism maybe of King James within the, within the play of Macbeth, but also talking about the gunpowder plot. Like it's, it's, um, it's very clever and, and I'm curious to see what the ASC does with it, especially since, they don't always do, um, I mean, they have a small cast. It's always like 11 or 12 actors, but what they're going to do with the other, you know, six or seven of them who aren't in the, in the main cast, it will be interesting to see. And I, I don't know, adaptations like this that always, that talk to Shakespeare's plays um, fascinate me. So I'm excited to see this one. And if there's an equivocation in your area, I know if you're in Ohio, Rubber City Theater has a production of equivocation going, I think still right now as well so go see it um hey aubrey what's today's date today is april 23rd oh that's so weird uh i feel like april 23rd is uh an important day for people like us but i oh can't remember why oh earth day no no right? earth day was yesterday it's the 22nd right. dang it what's important about the 23rd oh i know what it is Shakespeare's what? birthday slash also his oh, death right. day. Right. <laughs> oh, happy birthday, Shakespeare. Happy birthday, Mr. Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, you may <laughs> or may not have seen the parties, the birthday parties, the world over yeah. in celebration of Shakespeare's birth slash death day. Um, we did one here. It was like a little block party for the kiddos and we had like little workshops and crown making booths and stuff and cake obviously obviously any good birthday party ends in a song and cake so that yeah. happened by the time this airs we'll be a week away from that birthday but but we're, we, <laughs> it's yeah fine. we're thinking about it's it today because it's today we are um yeah. 
All right. Well, so, you know, we say a lot of things on this podcast. Um, never. I know. And sometimes we misspeak or we misinterpret information or, you know, we're just plain get things wrong. So Heresy. Uh, it seems only right to issue corrections as necessary. So two weeks ago uh, in our Twelfth Night 201 uh, episode, we assumed that Illyria is in Italy without even stopping to question that. And it's not even close yeah i heard you say that and i just let it go i was like meh yeah <laughs> um whatever <laughs> so a good friend molly hey molly uh hey, molly. Le- let us know that it's actually uh in eastern europe near present-day bosnia slash albania good looking out molly thanks thanks for that thanks, molly. um she actually when she texted me sent along a, a picture of sort of a traditional illyrian uh costume i don't want to say costume because that seems culturally appropriative but uh a wardrobe perhaps is the the better word anyway uh and said like how much would you want to see a 12th night in this kind of aesthetic and i went oh my god yes (laughs) yes i want to see that oh i think i saw that picture yeah i think she tweeted it also but if you're out there and you are trying to come up with a concept for your 12th night traditional illyria Check it out with yeah. maybe some music. Ooh. Yeah. Yes. Because yes. that plays so musical. Like, it is. What a great sort of influence to actually yeah. go back to the roots of where it's supposed to be set. Yeah. Eastern European. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, side note, unless it's relevant, what did Linnea say about fistulas? <laughs> were, were we correct? So, our, our good friend Linnea <laughs> texted me today and she said, What did she say? She said about fistulas. Just in case you did not look up fistulas, a fistula is basically an opening between things in the body that should not be there. Commonly, anal or rectal fistulas are some kind of little canal between the colon and the urethra. Women can get them during childbirth, either from the, u- mm. the uterus to the urethra or from the uterus to the colon. Either way, it's super gross and painful. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Linnea. Um, <laughs> Linnea just like has that in her brain always. Just in case you needed like really specific definition for yeah. a fistula. I didn't ask why That's she what knows. Because <laughs> I I don't want to know why she knows, but she knows. Right, yeah. So uh, thanks, Linnea. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Linnea, and thank you to everyone else so much for listening for this episode and for our whole first season if you've been with us from the beginning thank you there will be more and we hope you leave this podcast more informed than when you started yeah thanks so much uh for a great first year of this wild little thing we're doing um we will be back in august the beginning of august with some some more great plays some more awesome guest experts and obviously some more sassy feelings Right. And if you get to the middle of the summer, aka midsummer, and realize that you miss us, if you have a, a dream in the night in midsummer, yeah, about how yeah, you miss us, about us, fear not, because we might even drop a few extra little bonus episodes throughout the summer. So keep your ears and eyes peeled for that, because we will definitely announce it. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, SoundCloud, or Google Play. Yeah, get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. Email us at holla, H-O-L-L-A, at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. 
You can also find us at Hurlyburly Shakes on Instagram or Hurlyburly Shake on Twitter. See here my show. Look on the spectacle. Here lay my hope, and here my hope hath end. Here lay my heart, and here my heart was slain. Here lay my treasure, here my treasure lost. Here lay my bliss, and here my bliss bereft. But hope, heart, treasure, joy, and bliss. All fled, failed, died, yea, all decayed with this. I feel like I'm knocking on Satan's door, cause to tell the truth I can't take it no more. The Hurley Burley Shakespeare Show was produced entirely by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet, with no help from anyone, because we're poor. To read more about us or for other podcast-adjacent materials, visit our website at hurleyburleyshakespeareshow.com. Okay, we did have help from one guy, Jonathan Shu, who composed the music you're enjoying right now. For more information on him, go to jonathanshu.com or check out his albums on iTunes. And hey... If we name-checked you or someone you know during today's podcast, it's because you inspire us. So keep doing what you do best. I put the pedal to the metal, there's dust in my eyes Burning up my rubber going 95 I don't get to where I'm going, I think I might die I'm going to Las Vegas to get me a wife That was a good one, right? It's a dark fucking quote for the last episode of the season. It's really dark, but I think it like says everything about the Spanish tragedy. Yeah, this is Geronimo, like, yeah. Yeah, this is totally Geronimo. This is when he's revealing, guess what? Everybody's dead for real. Yeah, fucking that'll <laughs> teach you to kill my son. Yep. I just went method on this play. Urbed, 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 dead. Urbed, 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 dead. All right, now I'm hitting stop for real.